0: Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond, the Foreign Policy Director of the CER. Uh, And there's really only one topic worth discussing this week, and I don't mean Novak Djokovic's views on vaccines or Prince Andrew's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. The news that matters this week has been coming out of Russia and Ukraine. Now, at the time that we're recording this podcast, it's not clear whether the immediate crisis has passed, uh, whether the Russians are really withdrawing, or whether Ukraine could still face an invasion in the coming days. But we're going to take a look at the situation as it appears from Kiev and to, to discuss the diplomatic activity that's been going on to try and diffuse the tension. And joining me to shed some light on these issues are Christina Parandi, a Ukrainian citizen who was the CER's Clara Marina O'Donnell Fellow in 2019-20 to and is now a political analyst in Kyiv, and Marie Dumoulin, the Director of the Wider Europe Program at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and a former French diplomat who used to head the Russia and Eastern Europe Department of the French Foreign Ministry. So welcome to you both. Thank you. So, so let me start with you, Christina. I mean, it's been very noticeable over the last few weeks that President Zelensky has struck a much calmer note than, say, Boris Johnson or Joe Biden. Um, so are people in the West panicking? Are people in Kiev preparing for war or just calmly getting on with daily life?
2: Hello, Yan. Yes, you are absolutely right. So the situation we had over the past months, not even weeks, is the discrepancy between the tone of the messages that Ukrainians have been gotten from the Ukrainian leadership and notably President Zelensky and also the messages from the American, British and some other Western partners. And here there is a, quite an evident dynamics on the part of Ukrainian society because in the beginning there was lots of criticism also in Ukraine against President Zelensky that he somehow uh, downplaying the threat or that he's not showing enough respect to the international partners. But uh, in my opinion, the situation changed dramatically last Friday and Saturday, when many Western embassies started to announce the pullout of some of their diplomats, uh, also the monitors of the some countries from the special um, monitoring mission of the OSCE have been leaving Ukraine. Same goes for military instructors from the US, Canada, and the UK. And this whole panic, which was created in the media, of course, was not perceived very well in the Ukrainian society. Also, Ukrainian people started to ask themselves whether it's Ukraine, which has been sanctioned by, uh, over the security situation, Or should it be actually Russia? Because we have also had announcement of some airlines suspending the travels to Ukraine. And in general, it it created the atmosphere that Ukraine is being left alone uh, amid the current situation and the worries that everybody is leaving Ukraine to face the aggressor alone. At the same time, there is a good news that we clearly see some anxiety in the society, but we don't see any panic. People first and foremost are... Uh, quite used to the war which has been going on for almost eight years already so not nobody believes that much that Kiev or any other big Ukrainian cities can be taken over by the Russian this is partly because the trust into Ukrainian armed forces is very high in the society right now you can see that in the social media you can see that in the conversation uh, which you can have privately with Ukrainians and the second dimension is of course the realization that Ukraine now and Ukraine Of 2014 are completely different states in terms of capacities, in terms of the being able to perceive pro-Russian messages. Now it's not, uh, not the case, so definitely if there is an invasion, Ukrainians will resist, and this is something which uh, the current opinion polls demonstrate. Even yesterday there were some results uh, showing that more than 50% of Ukrainians are ready to join some forms of resistance in case the invasion is taking place. So just to sum up, there is the sense of disbelief that Putin would dare to invade Ukraine further, and the sense of determination to stand up and defend uh, ukrainian state by the citizens so maybe that's a positive message to send Mm.
0: Right, right. I mean, it's very interesting what you say about this uh, sense that, you know, the Western allies are, are in a sense, um, pulling out and leaving Ukraine on its own. I mean, one sense in which that clearly isn't true is in terms of high level visits. So, uh, I mean, Marie, if I can turn to you, uh, President Macron visited Kiev and Moscow last week. Uh, Chancellor Schultz followed him this week. Um There's been a lot of confusion um, about the capacity in which particularly Macron um, uh, visited. Um, So, you know, was, was he going as the current EU presidency? Was he going because of France's role in the Normandy format? Or was this a purely kind of national visit um, by the president of France. So who was Macron speaking for? Did he, you know, did he have some kind of mandate to, uh, to carry out this um, diplomatic exercise between Ukraine and Russia, or, or was this on his own initiative?
1: It's an interesting question and there has been a lot of confusion including in the French media regarding this uh, visit. Many um, made a parallel with Sarkozy's mediation in the Georgia War 2008 um, and forgot that basically as a presidency of the European Council, France doesn't have the same competencies as it used to have back in 2008 because Um, the EU institutions have changed a lot since 2008. Um, I think Macron was traveling basically um, as a French president and as one of the European leaders who has had the closest contacts, both with Putin and with Zelensky actually, over the last years. Um, If you remember, Macron was the first foreign head of state to receive Zelensky even before his election uh, back in 2019, and they have been in close contact ever since. One of the achievements of these contacts, both with Zelensky and Putin, was the Paris summit uh, of the Normandy format. So you can also say that Macron was traveling because of France's role um, in the Normandy format, but it's—I mean—it's both tracks. It's the French diplomacy um, and it's and, and Macron's re- personal relationship with both heads of states and um, and the role France and Germany can play within the Normandy format.
0: Right now, I mean, the, the Normandy format—it's quite—it's quite interesting. I—I I mean. Um... Scholz and Macron took rather different tones in Moscow. Um, Macron was sort of full of empathy for the trauma that the Russian people had undergone since the end of the Cold War. Um, scholz seemed to be much more direct on human rights questions um and you know meeting members of civil society raising the closure of memorial and so on um so i mean it, how much coordination is there between the two i mean is this do you, you know a kind of deliberate good cop bad cop routine that uh, that they were employing in moscow
1: First, I should say that there has been a lot of coordination, both between France and Germany, but also um, within the NATO with the U.S. So the messages that have been conveyed both by Macron and by Schultz in Moscow were basically coordinated messages with all EU and allies. Um, now... When it comes to the tone of their messaging, um, they are in quite different positions. Uh, Scholz was for the first time in Moscow, so he had to um, display probably more um, firmness towards Putin um, than Macron had. Macron was very tough on Russia uh, back in 2017 when he first um, met uh, with Putin and he has been, well, people see him as wanting to have a close relationship with Russia, wanting to have dialogue with Putin, but actually he's been very tough on Russia on a number of occasions. In 2017, in 2019, when he received uh, Putin in Bregançon, he was highly critical of the uh, human rights uh, situation um, in, in Russia. So he had, he's had these um, tough moments um, with Putin, and probably he felt that going to Moscow in this particular context, he also had to convey the message that the Russian concerns are being taken into account, but that there are fundamental principles that are non-negotiable. Um, so I think it's basically a difference of position. It's also because Schultz, um was increasingly seen or Germany was increasingly seen as a sort of weak part um, in Europe and in NATO. And um, so he had to convey the message that Germany is not weaker and is ready to be tough on Russia, just as the other allies are.
0: Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point. I mean, there's one nuance there and I might ask Christina about that, which is that um, Schultz, uh, both in his press conference with Putin and subsequently in a meeting with German journalists, seems to have said that um, Ukraine would not become a NATO member for the foreseeable future and perhaps hinted that that issue could be taken off the table for now. And I, I wondered, you know, is there any um, view on that from from Kiev? Will it have an impact on public opinion in, in Ukraine? Does it make it easier for Zelensky to to tell people that, um, you know, Ukraine should not pursue NATO membership for now, or um, is it going to, you know, reinforce those who say, well, you know, Zelensky is is being uh, is allowing himself to be bullied by um, by others like uh, France and Germany. So, you know, does it put him in a, a, a better or a worse position vis-a-vis the Ukrainian public opinion?
2: To be honest, I think it doesn't really change the public perce- perception of the NATO uh, issue, because frankly, what... Chancellor Scholz said, did not come as a huge surprise to Ukrainians and also to Ukrainian leadership. Even President Zelensky reacted to that statement at the press conference saying that uh, for quite some time, Western leaders have been hinted hinting to Ukraine that perhaps it should uh, lift its uh, aspiration to join NATO and help settle things easier. At the same time, uh, there is also slightly changed rhetoric from the part of the official narrative of Ukraine on the question of NATO membership. If some years ago we heard that this is an absolutely crucial goal for Ukraine, it's important to get directions very soon, especially what concerns the membership action plans and all of those concrete steps which can demonstrate NATO's openness to Ukraine. Now we see and hear that NATO's members membership is still the goal everybody realizes that this is a long-term objective nobody counts on ukraine being admitted to nato very soon at the same time the um, opportunities which are provided for by approximation with nato even without the immediate membership allow ukrainian army and ukrainian state to further develop the defense capabilities and this is something which for Ukrainian leadership is quite crucial now. Because quite recently, we have been lots of messages from the president and from other representatives of the government that Ukrainians can count only on themselves in case an invasion or aggression happens. And this is exactly in line that we should continue working to reform our armed forces, to modernize our defense capabilities. And then, of course, it's easier when you have the international support and if you have extended cooperation with NATO. At the same time, the membership perspective remains uh, as a part of the Ukrainian constitution. This is supported by the Ukrainian public opinion. So I would not expect uh, Ukrainian people to change their stance on the matter just because of some additional comments, which Ukrainians have already heard before.
0: Right, right. Now, uh, apart from NATO, I mean, there's obviously also a, an EU aspect to this. And and Marie, if I can turn to you and, and uh, look at the, the European aspect, um, I mean, it seems to a lot of people that that part of the motivation for Macron's activity, I mean, apart from his role in the Normandy format, um, is that he doesn't want to leave things to the US, you know, whether you set this in the context of his aspirations for European strategic autonomy or, or, you know, a more kind of um, traditional French view that um, you shouldn't let the Americans and, and the Russians do deals over the heads of Europe he seems very keen to to make clear that there is a big European component in solving this crisis. At the same time, it seems pretty clear that Putin would like to do deals with the Americans over the heads of the the Europeans. And, you know, all sides, both the Russians and um, others, seem largely to have sidelined the EU as an institution. You know, we haven't seen much activity from Charles Michel or Ursula von der Leyen or indeed um, uh, Josip Borrell. So, I mean, what do you think the role of Europe um, and particularly of the EU and its institutions is in this crisis? Can it make itself um, useful and relevant?
1: Well, first of all, I'd like to say that, interestingly, um, Macron hasn't been framing this crisis as a test case for strategic autonomy of the EU. Um, It should be said that uh, for some time now, he's been using the terms European sovereignty rather than strategic autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this case, uh, France has been very closely coordinating with the US because there was very early on the understanding that the russians basically wanted to talk to the us and not the europeans Um, so france has been insisting with the us and other um, european member states to have um, european security interests defined by european countries and discussed with the US so that the US can take them into account in their discussions with Russia. That's basically what uh, Macron said in his um, uh, speech at the European Parliament um, two or three weeks ago. Uh, He said Europeans should discuss their security among themselves, then share uh, share their interests with their NATO allies. And on this basis, a negotiation can be opened with Russia. Now that is very much a test case for what Macron has been advocating for a number of years now, that European security cannot be guaranteed without at some point taking into account the Russian dimension and basically talking to the Russians. And that's what he has been trying to achieve through his, um, through his travel to, to, to Moscow, um, along with the fact that it was the opportunity to have a European voice um, in this crisis. Now, I wouldn't say that the Europeans don't have a role in this crisis. First and foremost, they have a role as NATO allies um, because they have been displaying the unity of NATO and EU, um, in, in this crisis, and this has a very uh, strong effect in terms of deterrence. And second, uh, when it comes to economic sanctions, um, the EU is the relevant actor because of the intensity of economic relations with Russia. The sanctions that will hurt are the European sanctions.
0: Right, I mean that's that's a very good point, but it's also quite a, a limited one for for Europe. And um, I mean, if I can just press you slightly on on that, um, you know, there is a European voice, but the European voice is a Franco-German voice. It's not an EU voice. And I know from some of the discussions that I've had in the last few days that you know some parts of Northern and Central Europe feel Slightly uncomfortable um, with with that arrangement. So, you know, is this does Macron sort of feel that that you know this is a moment when big countries have to step forward and the EU institutions have to step back, or or is there a different role for the EU institutions maybe at a later stage in the crisis?
1: I think Paris would v- very much welcome when the EU institutions could have that kind of dialogue with the Russians. The the problem is the Russians won't accept that. You remember how Borel was treated when he went to Moscow. It's not the kind of things we need in this particular moment. So basically France and Germany are taking the lead in somehow uh, because they have the possibility to have that kind of relationship with the Russians. Um, And they have done that in, again, in close coordination with other EU member states. They both consulted a wide range of EU member states before traveling to Moscow. They had consultations after um, their uh, trips to Moscow. So um, there may be some uh, disappointment that big EU member states are taking the lead on this issue. But... Again, they are the ones in a position to talk to the Russians right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a very pragmatic approach. Um, Were the British still in the EU, I'm sure they would be taking an equally pragmatic approach.
1: Oh, but the British also to travel to Moscow. (laughs) You had your defense and and foreign secretaries there.
0: No, quite quite right, Um, but we no longer have to worry about whether anybody in the EU is offended by that or not. Uh, So, uh, you know, I guess we're in a slightly different position on that. But, um, Christina, uh, also on the, the subject of the EU, I mean, in a sense, this conflict began in 2014 or even at the end of 2013 at the the Vilnius um, Eastern Partnership Summit, with Russia trying to stop Ukraine signing an association agreement with the EU. So uh, does does Ukraine feel that it's getting the help it needs from the EU in this crisis? Or, Or, you know, is the EU sort of a bit of a letdown? Are people now more focused on um, the value of, of NATO as a as a shield, you know, or, you know, how seriously are people still thinking about getting a, an EU membership perspective and so on.
2: Well, the current security crisis definitely did not undermine the EU's positions in Ukraine and the uh, approximation with the EU and NATO are two separate tracks which Ukrainian government is continuing to prioritize in its foreign policy, so they are not mutually exclusive those are two parallel, equally important tracks. Now, EU has never been seen as security uh, guarantor in Ukraine, while NATO, of course, has, has this perception. At the same time, here, I would like to concur with what Marie has said, that EU has huge importance for some other aspects which concern the security situation. The sanctions policy is one of them, and here, for Ukraine, the consolidated EU position is much more credible than potentially individual positions of the member states uh, states especially given some apprehensions about what policy course france or germany may take on uh, in, in relation to the minsk agreements for instance so here for ukraine it's important that any act of further russian aggression and here we mean not only the invasion, but also some economic aggression, cyber aggression, you name it, there are lots of options for the hybrid warfare. It is important that any gradual increase of the level of aggression is met with some appropriate uh, response. And in Ukraine's opinion, it's the EU, which is the best place to coordinate that response and make it really effective. Another important aspect of uh, why EU still matters in the current security situation is that it can also present some unified position on matters like Nord Stream 2, which for Ukraine is a very beneficial fact that it can rely on the EU as a bloc and not on the individual member states, and the financial, the question of financial support. Most recently, the EU has adopted the new program of macrofinancial financial assistance to Ukraine and that was uh, very warmly welcomed in the country since now the economic consequences of the conflict are quite visible. At the same time the question of EU's credibility would be tested exactly in case of this further aggression. How quickly it can adopt its policy, how severe the sanctions can be. So of course perhaps it's too early to speak about that now but this litmus test will come at the later stage although of course we'll hope that uh, there will be no Uh, there will be no necessity to do that. And finally, while the EU is important as a bloc, uh, Ukrainian diplomacy is still focusing on the individual member states. This is something which has been visible over the past two weeks and uh, I think now even months so with all those high-level visits with Ukrainian diplomacy working individually with each of the member states position. Here of course the position of some countries such as for instance Poland on the Baltics was particularly welcomed because they can demonstrate what kind of individual action EU member states can take. And perhaps this would be Ukrainian strategy also for the foreseeable future to rely on the. You as the bloc, at the same time, while working together with the individual member states.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds like a good strategy. Okay, la- last question to Marie. I mean, perhaps it's it's too early to say, but you know, we, we started off by looking at the mood in, in Kiev. W- what's the mood in Paris? I mean, is the French perception that the acute fra- phase of this crisis is now ending, and that uh, you know Macron and Schultz have successfully diverted Putin onto a diplomatic track? Or do people think, you know, this is just, uh, this is just a pause and we still face a, a military risk? So, you know, where do you think this crisis is going next?
1: I think you have to differentiate between what the media perception is, uh, where a lot of um, media says now the, the acute phase of the crisis is over, uh, we move to another, um, another stage, and the, the, the government's perception. Um, the French foreign minister um, was in the media yesterday saying we, the crisis is not over yet. The capacity to launch a large scale military action is still there, so we are not done with this crisis yet. The, there is a re- relief though that um, the Russians signaled their willingness to continue the diplomatic path. Um, But obviously, there is no high expectation on um, a fast and easy de-escalation path.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that diplomatic path could be very long. I mean, you know, I, I go back to the days of MBFR, the mutual and balanced force reduction talks between the Soviet Union and NATO, which ran from, I think, 1974 till 1990 without actually agreeing anything. Um, so uh, you know diplomatic paths can be very long and, and winding. Um, but it's interesting that you say that um, uh, you know the, the foreign ministry is is being rather cautious. I mean that seems, it seems to be in line with the the NATO assessment as well as to whether uh, Russia is really withdrawing significant number of numbers of forces from the, the border. Um, I mean it seems to me that that Putin is is keeping his options open.
1: That's very much the perception here also and um, and there is uh, an awareness that we should still be prepared to a wide range of options for uh, Russian action in the next weeks and months
0: right right I mean in in terms of French diplomacy um you know, now that you have had Macron's, as it were, shuttle diplomacy between Kiev and, and Moscow, um, you know, do we now go back to sort of senior officials meeting um, in, on neutral ground um, or, or what, what do you think the next step is?
1: I guess the next step will not involve France, but the U.S. rather, because um, Moscow has announced that it would um, answer the U.S. proposals in the next few days. So I think if there is news to expect um, on the diplomatic track, it's rather the U.S.-Russian um, track than, um, than the European one. Um, as for Europeans, I guess the next expected uh, step is the Normandy format advisors meeting that has been announced for some time in March. Um, Right, right. Still some time to go there.
0: (laughs) Okay, yes, a lot of things could happen between now and March. Okay, well, I'm sure that we're going to be discussing these topics uh, again soon. Um, That's all that we've got time for now. Uh, I'd like to thank my guests, Christina Parandi and uh, Marie Dumoulin, very much for their contributions this morning. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to our podcast wherever you usually listen to your podcasts and leave us a review if you can. So thank you very much and goodbye.
1: Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or wanna leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.